this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. My name is Chad Hall, and I've spent most of my life circling paragraphs, poking holes in stories, and taking apart things that I can't always put back together. Whether it's in books or true crime documentaries, conversations or trending topics, I find gaps that most people breeze past. So this is a place to take my questions and to try to understand them. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Sometimes I miss something or I change my mind. This is my podcast. It matters, but it doesn't. All right, we're we are flying tea free tonight. Hopefully, uh, without the wonders of throat coat tea, I will not lose control of the raspiness in my voice. Basically, I'm I'm rushing into recording this because it's eight thirty, and if I don't record now, then I will deal with the problem of alarm on my phone going off to give the dog his nightly treat. I've made this mistake in the past, so I'm trying to avoid that. As a consequence, my normal habit of making a a little bit of tea before jumping in to record this was sacrificed. Things get bad, I guess I can always stop and go make some tea. You know, I I was editing last week's episode, and of course, editing requires me to listen to it and i couldn't help but i started i started laughing at myself i started laughing at myself because i had this section you know the the large percentage of the episodes conversation about resurfacing parts of myself and then i went okay now let's move over to <laughs> recommendations and i realized how weird that was I felt in live in the moment that it'd create this separate section for recommendations. You know, it was like a TV show. Like I had prepped it and they like, okay, now that we have those separated, somebody create the graphic that goes across the screen when he says that. I have the whole show. <laughs> I could talk about recommendations from the beginning of the episode until the end of the episode. This is the reason I'm bringing this up. This is something that happens to me frequently, where things that for a lot of people may be very obvious are not 
obvious for me. I think in some <laughs> some degree, I I think maybe I'm like the nutty professor, you know, like I, my head's over here and I'm focused on this. And because of that, tunnel vision, all of these obvious things to everybody else, like tying your shoes, go, <laughs> go neglected. So the simple logic of that when it came to formatting with the last episode was not obvious to me in the moment. A couple hours later, when I was editing, it was very obvious, which is why I was laughing. But then it occurs to me how strange that was. Now, I understand I do the album recommendation at the end because it's not really part of the rest of the conversation. It really is like an add-on thing at the end where it's like, before I leave, here's an album to check out this week. That is different. But like the books and the movies and stuff like that, like, why would I just, okay, check out this book. Why wouldn't I just like talk about it in the episode? So, I mean, even in that episode, I did end up talking about it, talking about the movie and the book and, pleading with people to watch that movie. And I wonder if any of you did. Did anybody watch Departures from 2008? I'm going to say it again. You are really missing out. I honestly did not. I found that movie just randomly. It was not recommended. I was literally just flipping through Apple TV, looking for Japanese films because I was in the mood for something Japanese. Found like five, said, watch this later, watch this later, watch this later. And that one just happened to be at the front. And man, did I look out. So one of the things that's very interesting to me about this week is one one thing that doesn't seem to come up on this show very much, but I think is kind of insinuated in the topics and maybe not even the topics, but the the manner with which I talk, to think, talk about things is uh, I... I'm one of those people that takes notes on everything. Okay, not everything. I'm not that guy. <laughs> but I am the guy that will pause a movie to take a note. I am the guy that can't read a book without taking notes. I am the guy that wishes I could save parts of podcasts and have them automatically transcribed for me. I am that guy. Everything else in my life, maybe I should be taking more notes on, which we'll we'll get into that a little bit. But one of the, if you go back to the show that I did with Lamb, which actually has its own feed, Random Bass, or if you go look for that, if you go back to probably the first, I'd say 20, maybe, maybe a little bit more episodes of that show, one thing that came up a lot was Lamb and I talking about to-do apps and note-taking apps and moving and trying to find the perfect one. And that path, in some ways, never really ended. Though for a while, I just basically gave up on it. I was doing paper for many, many years. I still love taking notes on paper. There's just something about the experience of transferring something onto the paper. But not long ago, I found an app called Rome Research. There's a huge cult following for this app. Plenty that you could go find about this app, especially on YouTube and Twitter. I'm not here to rant and rave about how wonderful it is or whatever. But 
I was a beta user of that app, and I used it for a considerable amount of time. And then when 2020 happened, a lot of my client work dried up. So I had to really tighten the purse strings. And Rome isn't cheap. It's very powerful, but it's $15 a month. And when you compare compare that to some apps that are, you know, like Bear, it's completely different, completely different type of app. They don't even, in some ways, they don't compare at all. But that really only boils down to like $2 a month for that app or Apple Notes, which is free. I realized that if I was going to type in purse strings, I had to be able to say, what's extraneous? And that was one of the things that was extraneous. And I was frustrated with it at the time. And I'm I'm not going into a lot of the nerdier details of this, but essentially it's the problem that comes up here a lot. Problem that comes up for me a lot is I get involved in the process and then I get overly involved in the process. Maybe it's my Virgo nature. I don't know. But I have this tendency to get over wrapped up in the idea of creating the perfect system. You know, like if you could set it and forget it, that's the dream, right? I can create this system. It's so wonderful and it's so suited exactly for my needs that once I do all the work to set that up, it's really easy to use after that. That's the dream. And even as I say it, it still sounds wonderful. It sounds like a vacation in Fiji to me. But it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't work out that way for a lot of reasons that maybe aren't worth going into depth right now. But one reason is because you don't know what the perfect system is. And as I'm talking about this right now, I'm thinking a lot about what I've done with podcasting since 2016. I've played with a lot of formats. I've played with a lot of names. I've split shows up. I've combined shows. I've brought in co-hosts. I've gone solo. I've tried many, many things. It's a true crime for a little while, a paranormal for a little while. And the reason for that is, I mean, you don't know. You don't know what something is until you're in it. Let's use true crime for an example. I I love true crime. I love watching true crime documentaries. I love talking about it. I've done episodes on it. But I've done episodes in this kind of format, where I'm sort of just talking about it in general, off the cuff. What my intention was originally when I was going to do true crime was I was going to do like, you know, like Crime Junkie and all these other shows, like My Favorite Murder, all of them, in the sense that they, they do research on the case and then they bring that research in. That's what I was going to do. And I wanted to be very extensive because I felt like... Uh, I don't want to go on this tangent for too long. I'm catching myself right now on the tangent. But I, I noticed that a lot of people were using a hair, hearsay for their research. You know, a, a podcast that's quoting a blog, that's quoting another blog. But like if you follow back the sources, there's like no original source. And I just, it would always frustrate me because unsolved mysteries, not the TV show, but the actual term unsolved crimes is maybe a better way to say it. That's my particular area of interest when it comes to true crime. And I I felt like at the time, and I feel like now, that when you don't go that extra mile to make sure that the research that you're pulling in is actually valid on someone's case, 
and you're not helping them. You're not helping the family. You know, like if you're a missing person, if we're talking about a missing person and you're giving information that's incorrect because you pulled it from a blogger and you didn't find out if the blogger knew what the hell they were talking about, you could even be getting in the way of that person being found. You know, you could be creating false leads and all of these other things. And it frustrated me. So I said, you know, like if I were going to do true crime, I would put in the work. And I did it. I did the work. And I found out it just wasn't sustainable in the sense that once I got into it, like I said earlier, I discovered what it was really like. And it was a lot of responsibility especially the way that I viewed it. And that's the main reason I didn't continue with it. It wasn't that I wasn't capable of doing it. It wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It wasn't that I wasn't still passionate about it. In particular, I was intending on focusing on missing cases for people of color because when you watch shows, which I love, like the, like Disappeared, it's like one out of every 15 cases is a person of color. And it's the numbers of missing people that are people of color that are missing are not less than the number of white people that are missing. But the number of coverage, the number of shows that cover that and the amount that they cover it is drastically less. And I thought that, well, if nobody else is covering these, maybe I could do that. That's what I was going to, I was going to do. And even as I say it now, I feel like, you know, somebody needs to be doing that. But what I found when I got into it was that, the responsibility was too much for me. I cared too much. I cared too much about the details. I spent a lot of time researching multiple cases. I've mentioned one. I've, I've mentioned before that my first, first idea when I originally wanted to do true crime, this is when I first came up with the name for the questions, I was researching the Long Island serial killer which has now been covered two pod, at least two or three podcasts now, maybe even four podcasts now. There's a TV special with Billy Jensen. And it's a big, it's a big thing now. People are finally, it's, it's the hip case right now, I guess. Oh, Lost Girls, the book, uh, the definitive book on the case was made into a movie for Netflix, which was decent. That's where I originally started. The other case, once, like a year later, when I decided I was going to go back to true crime, the other case that I really spent a lot of time on was the disappearance of Asia Degree. I'm not going to go into the case here. This is not what I talk about here, really. But this is where the... I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words because I'm not sure how I want to say this. This is where the responsibility came in because I think it's more apparent when you're dealing with crimes regarding children. I, I think the burden, or the, not the burden... But the weight and the seriousness of the situation, it bears down on us more when it's when it's a child. At least uh, me and most people I know. And what I found when I was going through that case is there were certain things that I could see other people were saying. Newspapers, a lot of a lot of credible sources saying, but then when you actually start to examine things, it wasn't absolute that those things were true. So even the credible sources had fallen into the trap of hearsay. I'll give you a specific example just because it's it's weird to talk about this in abstract because you, you're not getting what I'm saying without having something tangible. 
So the the father in the case, I believe his name is Harold, Harold Degree. Everybody reported that he works the swing shift at, I think he works on a, he worked on a dock, you know, loading and unloading stuff. He worked a swing shift, which is like late afternoon, early evening, you know, like dinner time to middle of the night somewhere, generally. And Asia Degree disappeared in the middle of the night on a Sunday evening, the day before Valentine's Day, which also happened to be her parents' anniversary, wedding anniversary. So the story, the way the story is told over and over again from top-tier news sources across the board is that the people that were home on that evening were the mom, Aquila, and... O'Brien, the son, and Asia. I'm actually really proud of myself that all these names are coming to me. I haven't read these details in a long time. And the assumption is that Harold was at work on the swing shift because he worked the swing shifts. So everybody repeated that. But the more that I read the case, the less sense that made, because it was a Sunday evening. Why would he be working the swing shift on a Sunday evening? Okay, maybe some places you work seven days a week, but docks, dock workers, loading, unloading, usually not. Usually Monday through Friday. And then there was the wording, the wording of of interviews with the father. The father would say certain things. Like, for example, there's a point in the evening where Aisha had gone to bed. It's about 8 o'clock. And I think it's about 9 o'clock. She woke up maybe to go to the bathroom or something. You know, like She came up and the wording of the interviews of the family said she came out for a while and watched TV with the family. I believe Harold himself says that. Now, that's weird wording. If it's just the mom and the brother, wouldn't you just say she came out and watched TV with her mom and her brother? Why would you say the family? But if the mom, the brother... And the dad were home, then you would say the family because you don't want to list all three people. This is not, I'm not saying this is concrete evidence or anything. I'm just saying that that was weird to me. And then I started to notice things about Harold said he went to the store to get, you know, something for Valentine's Day for his wife's anniversary. How could he do that if he's at work? Because he wouldn't come home till like midnight. How could he go to the store at midnight? And it started to realize that. He, what happened, I think, is the dude works swing shifts Monday through Friday, not on Sundays. So he was home, but everybody was reporting that he was at work. Now, I don't know which of those is true. And this is where the responsibility came on me because I said, I don't know which one's true. And I didn't feel good about reporting a key part of the case. You can't tell the the story of the case without telling that part of the story. And how could I tell that part of the story when I didn't know which of those was the truth? Now, I'm sure the police know. I'm sure Harold knows. I'm sure Aquila knows. But all these reports and all the sources that I have available to me don't seem to know. And it started to get me worried. What other things are being reported by everybody that's reporting this case and other cases that are assumptions of truth? that aren't actually truth. 
And that's why I couldn't continue with true crime, because once I was in it, I realized that I wasn't the type of person that could turn my head and just pretend it was good enough. And the reason I'm bringing this up, the reason I'm talking about this is because this is the way my brain works. I can't, there's certain, certain things that I can't, I don't want to say I can't half-ass because that's, it sounds like something different than what I'm talking about. There's certain things that I can't help myself, but go all in with. There are certain tendencies that I have that I have trouble dialing back. Now let's go back to the note-taking thing. One of the reasons that I was willing to leave Rome, I said that I was frustrated with it, is because I was trying to build this perfect system in my head. And I didn't need to build a perfect system. I needed to build a system that worked for the things that I needed to work and it could improve over time. And of any app that I've ever used, Rome is really great for that because it's a very flexible app. You can do a lot of different things with it. It doesn't have a predefined architecture the way that many other apps do. So I had given myself this trap of like trying to create this thing and it it ultimately got frustrating because what do what do the pages where my book notes go? What do they look like? You know, after I read a book that I'm going to probably mention a little bit later, after I finish reading The Mind-Gut Connection, what what does the page that I'm going to put that into look like? You know, what's the structure that I define for that page? Do I want the first line to be the author and then the next line the year that it's published? Okay, you're understanding where, where I'm going with this? For somebody who overthinks things like this, I find something. I work with it. I'm like, that works for a while until I hit a pain point. And then I would hit a pain point. I'm like, oh, that's why I can't do that like that. And so I would, okay, I got to change the template a little bit. You just move this field here and this like this. But then in my head, I'd be thinking, well, that's great for everything I do from now on. But what about those 57 other book note pages that I've already done that have the old format, the old system? And I could, maybe, you know, I could ignore it, turn turn a blind eye to it, to, to it until I had to make another change and then another change. And these are all little minor things, right? You know, like put this on the same line. It's, it's all... It's all complicated now the system works, but has to do with how search works and stuff like that. Where you put things matters because everything's in bullet points. So after a while, it gets frustrating using the system for me because in my head, I wanted to create this perfect system, but everything's in like five different versions. And if I'm going to go back and fix it, I feel like I'm going to, all I'm doing is continually retreading the same ground over and over again. I touched on this a little bit on a blog this week. I don't remember what the article is called. I think it's moving dirt from one side of moving dirt from one side of the yard to the other. Because that's what I feel like when I would get into these ruts with these with these apps where I'd be worrying so much about the process. I felt like I was taking a pile of dirt and moving it from the left side of the yard to the right side of the yard. And then realizing, no, you know what? It was better where it was before. And picking up the dirt and taking it back to the, the right side of the yard. And then getting there, like, no, that's right. This spot gets wet. Let me take it back to the left side of the yard. Over and over again. And it gets exhausting. As you can imagine, it's probably exhausting hearing me talk about it. So I've been moving stuff into the system, into Rome. 
And I've been trying to keep things very simple. And it's taking a lot of willpower. I'm sure you can tell just hearing me talk about it. That I get I get wrapped up in this stuff. This is these are things that also excite me. This isn't all bad stuff. I like these type of things. I like little busy work and stuff like that. I like that. I like typing things and organizing things in note apps while I watch TV. Comes from when I was a kid. I was used to draw while I was watching TV. I got used to, I grew up with the idea of watching TV and doing something at the same time. So this isn't all like some form of self-torture. But that's where the danger is. Is that I, I, this is a pool that I want to put my feet into, but I don't want to jump into the deep end. But once you put your feet in, suddenly you want to jump into the deep end. And it's very hard for me to manage that. It takes a lot, a lot of willpower. Like right now, it's stressing me out the way my desk looks right now because I'm, as I said, moving stuff into this system. So I have like certain things that I've been tracking using index cards. I'm moving into the into the system. So I have like four piles of small piles of index cards in front of me. And it's just like a box over here that they came from. Just those little things on my desk in front of me while I'm recording. Like, whoa, why is this area so busy? I like this area so clean. It's just, so it's part of the way that I don't even know that I was aware of this when I did it. But I think part of the way that I'm dealing with, the way I'm dealing with not diving fully in and getting lost and caught up in all of it again is today, actually, literally maybe 40 minutes before I started recording this, I recorded something for YouTube. I did a tutorial on how I track the books that I'm rereading using Rome. And I think that's a very healthy exercise for me to take this, let's call it this tendency to go overboard, this tendency to get overly involved in the system. Let's take that and channel it in a different way. Instead of continuing to channel it into the system itself, let's channel it into sharing some of the things that I'm learning about the system, some of the ways I'm using the system, so that maybe you know, five, ten other people that watch the video who use Rome will find it useful. You know, like, why not channel it that way? And I, I, I was excited because I've been wanting to do something on YouTube, but I haven't had an idea of what I wanted to do. I still have love for YouTube from the, the my my vlogging days. I didn't want to go back to doing vlogging. <laughs> I don't ever think I want to go back to doing vlogging. I had experimented for a while. There's one video on there where I experimented with what I'm doing right now. Where I turn on the camera and just kind of talk. Instead, I, I liked doing that here more. I think I, there's so much involved in just kind of opening it up the way that I do, that it was really hard to do that with the camera. Not because I of some sort of vanity or something like that, but more like just too many other logistical things to be thinking about while I'm trying to just focus all my energy in being present in speaking and maintaining a cohesive line of, of thought here. And like I did earlier, tried to control my tangents. 
but you throw lighting and is the camera in focus? Oh no, it's focused on the background instead of my face. That light is shining on my forehead and that looks awful. Having to think about all that stuff at the same time, I was, I just, I didn't want to do it. I started to, I think it was the, I don't remember what the episode was called. It was three or four episodes ago. I turned on the camera when I first started recording that and I got about two minutes in and I was like, nope, cannot, this is not going to work. I've thought of other things of like maybe recording all of it with the camera and then like just cutting up pieces and putting it on YouTube. But then I still have to think about the camera. I just I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. Maybe that'll change. I don't know. I don't feel a burning need to do it. But one of the benefits of the small, simple systems that I can build with Rome that don't take a lot of this uh, getting lost in the weeds type of thinking, one of the things I can do is use it as a simple way to surface, not even to surface, but to kind of lasso interesting things that uh, I run across during the week, you know, things that go through my head, something I listen to, you know, the movie or something like that. Just these trains of thought that that I'm capturing in my notes, but maybe necessarily aren't showing up in my mind when I turn on the microphone. I had a lot of insecurity about last week's episode because I felt like I, I didn't feel like I really had command over my train of thought last week. I haven't heard any complaints, but this is my complaint. I listened to it and I, I didn't feel like I knew. I felt like I was wandering in that episode more than stumbling onto things. Like in this episode, I'm rambling. I don't have a problem with rambling, but it's about rambling and then having spurts of thoughts and trains of thought. And then maybe uh, rambling my way to another spurt. And I felt like I never hit one of those those slipstreams, those momentum spots in the last episode. I felt like I was continually plodding along. Now, you might not have heard that, but that's how I felt about it. So I, it was bothering me all week, to be honest. Not, not all week, but <laughs> like three days. Not major, but just this little nagging thing like, man, not sure. Not sure about that last one. Not sure about that last episode. So one of the things that would be really useful is as I'm going through the week, I'm already taking notes in this app. I'm not doing anything different. But to be able to, you know, maybe just like throw a tag next to certain things like, oh, that's a good one. You know, like a star. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And then be able to sit here and just, while I'm talking, have this list of things from the week that like sparked me. And maybe uh, one, two, or three of them will show up in this train of thought that I jump onto. And if not, if I don't need them, that's fantastic. If I can find a train of thought like I have for the majority of this 30 minutes so far, then that's great. You know, I don't don't want them to be a crutch as in something I want to lean on, but I do want them to have, have, I want them there so I have something to grab onto when I feel like I'm floundering. Because it does happen sometimes. There are times when I turn on the microphone and maybe I'm not in the right mindset and I flounder a little bit. You don't hear it because I'll cut it. You know, if I flounder, there'll be times where I'm in the middle of a sentence and I stop 
And I've lost, it's not that I've lost my train of thought, it's that I've lost my train of words. And my thoughts are going, but they've moved into this space where they're, I'm thinking internally instead of externally. And it takes me a little while sometimes to get that train back onto the other tracks, back onto the I'm talking track. So there are times that I maybe, unfortunately, you know, you sit down to record and you're not hyperverbal. I feel like I'm I'm hyperverbal now. It doesn't mean I'm hyperarticulate. Doesn't mean that I don't stumble and I don't pause. But I feel like there are words and things that that are coming out, thoughts that I'm thoughts that I want to express. And when you don't necessarily have that in the moment, it's good to just be able to look over the screen and go, "Oh yeah, gut microbiome." I've been thinking a lot about that this week. I'm not making that up. I actually have been thinking a lot about the gut this week, which actually I brought it up twice. I might as well talk a little bit about it. So I don't want to go. It's hard. It's actually hard to talk about the gut because essentially when you talk about the gut, you're talking about poo. And a lot of people don't like to hear people talk about poo. But I will try to keep the poo at a minimum. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here. I'm just there's some interesting things. This is you know this is the way I do things. I'm not an informational podcast. I'm just sharing things that I find interesting that you may find interesting. That I hope, at the very least, maybe you just like hearing me ramble in the background. Maybe you're not even paying attention to me. But there were some crazy things that I ran across. I'm reading. I don't remember the author's name right now. It's Emerin something. But the book is called the gut, the mind gut connection. And I've owned it for a while. I actually started reading it several months ago, and then I just kind of started reading other books instead. It just wasn't where wasn't where I was or where I needed to be to read it. But two, three weeks ago, I had this weird, I might have brought it up, I'm not sure. I had this weird cold, using air quotes kind of when I say the word cold there. It was this thing, it only lasted a day. The majority of the effects, essentially what happened, I'll go into the details, not too many of the details, but I woke up in the middle of the night and my stomach was just kind of burning. Like this like, not like I've normally experienced, but it was, uh, I want to say it was like lava in my stomach. And I started like, I'm laying in bed and I started running through my head. Like, what did I eat? I eat anything like out of the ordinary and the only thing I could think of was like there's these little pretzel bites that have like peanut butter in them. I ate like 10 of those. Not even a lot, but it was the only thing that I'd eaten that day that wasn't something that I eat on a regular basis. That was something new that had just been around and I, I had some. It was weird. So, you know, like you're tired, you're half awake. I'm like, oh, maybe they were poisoned. <laughs> He's thinking weird stuff. And the next day that discomfort moved south into the gut. And it wasn't anything excessive, nothing that I need to describe or anything, but it was just discomfort, just gut discomfort. Ever since then, my gut has not returned to what I would consider normal. The way things function and the outcome of the functioning of the gut has not reached normal. There's nothing distressing or nothing like I'm ill. I'm not, you know, I'm not 
having leakage or any of these gross words that we don't want to think about. It's just not, it's not normal. It's just a little off. And because of that, I started reading things as I do. And I was reading a lot about acid reflux because one of the things that was happening, I, I sleep with a CPAP that goes just under my nose and then I tape my mouth shut so that I don't breathe through my mouth all night, which I have a tendency to want to do. I woke up a couple times with stomach, you know, stomach bile. You know, I verped essentially in my sleep. And that's acid reflux. So I was reading about acid reflux and trying to figure out like, oh, does that translate to the gut? You know, like maybe my gut is to the equilibrium in my gut. Maybe it's just a little off, you know, like it's just a little slanted. Started reading and I couldn't really find any like super strong connections there. But I found the opposite connection that the gut can create acid reflux. And I don't know if any of these things happen to me or whatever, but this is the way that I'm thinking about what happened. Whatever happened in that day, maybe I had a bug of some sort, you know, just one little bug, one little something that put me out of equilibrium. And I need to find my way back to equilibrium. So because of that, I suddenly had this <laughs> pressing need, pressing desire to read this mind-gut connection book. What can I learn from this? You know? And the book is a lot about, it's a lot about how stress affects the gut. I think ultimately, uh, while all these other things, I don't want to leave you hanging, I, while all these other things are possible, I think the majority of my problem is that I have a, t I have a more stressful personality and a natural tendency to have a more acidic stomach. And on top of that, I had just in the last like four or five months started drinking coffee again, which is highly acidic, which I haven't drank for years because uh, the caffeine and my anxiety didn't mix. Well, now I can tolerate the caffeine. And I had gotten so comfortable with the coffee that I had started having two cups a day instead of just one cup. And maybe that just upped acid a little bit more than I needed it to. And with the gut being a little off balance from that day, everything just needed to calm down, you know? So I went to the store. I got, you know, we all got our our money. Well, most of us got our money from, from the government, the stimulus checks. I immediately paid off a bunch of bills that I'd been breathing down my neck because last year has been brutal. I got caught up on all my bills and all my finances and I went to the grocery store and I spent $150 on food with one goal in mind. Every piece of food I bought was healthy for the gut in many ways. And I, you know, I bought kombucha, I bought kefir, I bought sauerkraut, I bought kimchi, I bought asparagus because it's a prebiotic. I, I bought dark chocolate with very little sugar in it because that's supposed to be good for the gut because of polyphenols. I bought all this stuff, and I've been consuming it, and I, I will be honest, it's been helping a little bit. I also actually, I forgot, I forgot about this before I started reading the Mind Gut Connection, which by the way, at this point in the story, I have not started rereading the book again. All this stuff I looked up, 
I was looking, I was finding stuff on the internet, like WebMD and Mayo Clinic and some maybe non-reputable websites and just running across stuff. I think I found a couple podcasts with doctors talking about gut, just kind of pieced together a health plan for my, for my gut, for myself, just for a couple weeks. But I just happened to, at that time, pick up uh, Taro Isocopola, who's one of the founders of Four Sigmatic, which is a mushroom uh, supplement company. I guess that's how you would describe them. They used to be a mushroom coffee company, but now they make supplements of different sorts, or powders at least. I don't know how they describe themselves. He wrote a book called Healing Mushrooms. And while most people think books about mushrooms are about uh, psilocybin, this is about other mushrooms. This is about eating mushrooms for general health. And it kept coming up in these, he, he covers 10 mushrooms. I think like six of them. It would say digestive aid, uh, good for the gut, and all these things, you know, like it helps fight candida or whatever. And by the time I finished that book, I was like, wow, I got to get some of these mushrooms. And then I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, wait a minute. I have some Four Sigmatic stuff in the cupboard that I forgot about. Now, there was the Lion's Mane one, which I used to take before I podcast. Lion's Mane is supposed to be good for your brain. But there was this other one I had bought and I had forgot about it. And it's called Superfoods Blend. And what the Superfoods Blend is, (laughs) basically, it's the product version of the book. He talks about 10 mushrooms in here. This superfood blends is those 10 mushrooms ground up into a powder. And you take a teaspoon of it every day with, you know, you mix it in your tea or whatever. So I've been doing that for the past week. I've been doing that. But I wanted more stuff. And I wanted more information. So I pick up this mind gut book. Let me learn more about this gut. And I think I have, I have another book. It's bio, Psychobiotic Revolution. These guys, the guys who wrote that book were guests on Blind Boys podcast. That was also something that made me think about going to the store, buy food before I started reading. So I've got all this information now on gut stuff. So <laughs> you may be hearing more about interesting gut discoveries. But the, the two things that I wanted to share from this book, I think it's two, maybe three. First of all, actually, what's really interesting about the gut is how little everybody seems to understand it. Like uh, this guy, he says in the book, he says that the gut has, I don't remember if it's as many, it's either a little bit more or a little bit less than the number of neurons in the brain. That's, I mean, it's incredible that there's all, the gut, they call it the second brain because the gut can actually think for itself. You know, it's not obviously pondering Shakespeare, but like the things that the gut does, the contractions and the choices that it makes aren't coming from the brain. It's deciding itself. That's trippy. That's really trippy. That I think they said that, I think he says that the vagus nerve, which connects the, the brain and the gut, the vagus nerve connects everything, but that's how they communicate, through the vagus nerve, the gut and the brain. Like I think only like 20% of the traffic on that little highway is from the brain to the gut. Most of the information traveling on the vagus nerve from the brain to the gut is the gut telling the brain things. And a lot of those things actually affect our emotions and our moods. It's very trippy. But here's one of the things that they don't know about the gut, that they're still learning. 
Hopefully you guys can't hear that. My hands are like right by the microphone and I'm rubbing them. And I just noticed it in the microphone. Sorry, if that was annoying. Sorry. So they so there is evidence of 25 different bitter taste receptors in the human gut. So there's 25 different ways that your gut can taste bitterness. But nobody knows why. Nobody knows why your gut needs to be able to taste bitterness. Nobody. They have no clue. Everything is just guesses. Isn't that fascinating? Like, it can taste bitterness, but, but why? What is the advantage of that? My thought is that the taste receptors, because it does taste other things other than bitterness, but my thought is that there are certain food types that are healthy for the gut. So maybe when your gut tastes those food types coming in, it knows that you're eating stuff that's good for you, for it, you know, for the gut, you know, like uh, bitter things, like I said, dark chocolate, kale, you know, leafy greens, the things that are good for your gut that happen to be, a lot of them happen to be bitter. Sauerkraut is good for your gut. Fermented food is good for your gut. It's bitter. So maybe it needs to taste those things so that it can send signals to the brain and going, you're in a good mood. You're in a good mood. You're in a good mood. Because it's training the brain to want to eat bitter things so that the gut will stay healthy. That's my theory. (laughs) I'm no expert, though. Who knows? (laughs) I could be completely wrong, of course. Here's another one. Let's, Let's talk a little bit about toxoplasma. This is weird. Have you ever heard of toxoplasma? This is the reason that OBGYNs tell pregnant women not to change kitty litter. Because cat urine has this thing called toxoplasma in it. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> I didn't write down what it is. If it's a virus or a bacteria, I think it's a bacteria. Anyways, toxoplasma. The purpose of, well, I don't say the purpose, but the weird thing about toxoplasma is that it's from what they can, they can guess, it's intended to infect rodents. That when rodents come into contact with cat urine, they breathe in and they get this toxoplasma. And what the toxoplasma does to rodents is it, it makes them attracted sexually. <laughs> this is so weird. It makes them sexually attracted to cat urine. Like when they start smelling cat urine, they get aroused. So like it's like this ultimate driving factor to make them go around cat urine so that they'll breathe in more toxoplasma and more toxoplasma. And the more toxoplasma that they breathe in, the more they're attracted to the smell. And I guess the idea here is that essentially the toxoplasma makes them really easy targets for cats to kill. I'm sure I missed a whole bunch of pieces of that. I don't have the, like the summary of it here. I just have the word toxoplasma. But that's weird <laughs> that essentially you could almost say that smelling cat urine makes rodents sexually attracted to cats <laughs> so that they can kill them. And of course, I can't uh, I can't say something that crazy without sharing this little tidbit. This is actually the quote. I'm going to actually read the quote. It's only a couple sentences. 
Ancient Egyptians claimed that the god Thoth had taught them about auto-intoxication and about purifying the gut to avoid disease. This led the pharaoh to name an appointee known as Keeper of the Rectum, whose job was to manage the royal enemas. One of history's first truly rough gigs. <laughs> How hilarious is that? This is, you know, what's fascinating about this is I remember, I, I remember some people who were my age had parents who were obsessed with, uh, they weren't obsessed with enemas, but they were obsessed with essentially the same thing, colonics. That everybody had to get colonics and that colonics is about keeping your gut healthy. You got to get in there. You got to wash the walls and everything. Guess what? They're not really that good for you, especially if you do that, if you do it to children, essentially the, there's a certain age, age range. I don't remember what it is. I'm going to say it's about 18 up until that point, the child's gut is still developing. And what it's developing is the gut microbiome. Everybody has a unique gut microbiome. The things that you collect, whether it is bacteria from the from your mother's vagina as you're coming out at birth or, or from the dirt that uh, is on the ground when you touch the ground or in ancient cultures, they use banana leaves during birth. So you might be getting a little bacteria from the banana leaf. And then if you eat leftovers as you're growing up, you get different kinds of bacteria. And so you build up this world inside your gut, this unique world inside your gut. And that's healthy. That's how you have a healthy gut. That's how we process things. That's how we have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria inside of our body. But if you're giving, there's, I guess there's these people that would like make their children, like give themselves an enema every day. If you do that, you're washing this stuff out. So you're actually preventing the processing and the, the development of this healthy world inside of the gut. All right. All right. That's enough. Enough poo talk. <laughs> uh, we're at almost an hour anyways. I think I've rambled, rambled long enough. Before we get out of here, let's talk about the album of the week. I don't know. I'm not going to, like I said, you know, the movies and the books and stuff, I'll work that in. We just talked about a book for like half the episode. The album is Silent Alarm by Block Party. Block Party is like this band that I don't understand how they didn't get, at least in America, how they didn't get more credit. Especially this first album. You know, there's a, I think they have four albums now. And there was a period of time where like their third album Intimacy. That was like my block party album. There's a song on there called Biko that's totally beautiful. But when I went back this week and I was listening to this first album, Silent Alarm, I realized this one was so different. Their sound, it, it evolves over time and there's a lot more, I don't want to say electronics, but a lot more a different style, less rock influence bleeds into their music. And because of that, unfortunately, I mean, it, it, it leads to some very good songs. But unfortunately, what it does also lead to is less of the drummer. And when I was listening to the album this time, one of the things that stands out to me, other than Kayleigh's vocals, he just has these soulful, aching vocals that I love so much. But the drums on this album and the epitome of these drums on this album is the first song like eating glass 
because he does something that's very hard to do, I think. I'm not a drummer, but I always wished I was. He is overplaying in the sense that he's 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 doing more things on the drums than maybe he should be. Like he's he's just Keith Moon from The Who used to do this a lot. Where it's like you could play the beat and you could play some flourishes and stuff like that and be considered a good drummer. But if you're just nonstop hitting things and all over the place and syncopating and changing, people say you're overplaying. And maybe you are, right? But the drummer is overplaying in the song, but it works because that overplaying is what propels this song forward. And the first time in a long time listening to this album for the first time, I noticed that that happens more times in the album than I had remembered. That this drummer is just, that everything about this album is galloping. It's moving forward. It has momentum. It has, it's just so, it's pulsing. And a lot of that comes from the drums. And I hadn't realized how, even though, like I said, they go in directions that I love, and I love that third album so much, I hadn't realized what had been lost from this first album when the drums became less important. So go check out that album if you don't know it. Some people would call it Britpop. I I don't know what you'd call it. I call it good. I'll put it I'll put it in the playlist, of course. I forgot last week. I waited a couple of days before I had the last album because I forgot. So I'll do that right now when I finish this. So if you want to follow the playlist, it's there for you. Okay, that's enough talking. I'll talk to you next week. This is the podcast version of It Matters But It Doesn't. You can also read my blog at itmattersbutitdoesn't.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast because you find some sort of value in it, then you can find the link in the description of each episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you when I see you.